Hey, AJ, how you doing? Good, how's it going? Do you wish that state-backed hacking groups would stop doing their thing so you don't have to come on the pod with me to talk about it? Well, if I could separate out the nerdy academic journalist part of me from the real world implications, I mean, that would be good because I think they're really interesting. But the context is obviously super disturbing and um, not cool. So, yes, I wish they would stop. We're talking on Wednesday. This episode will be published on Thursday. Tomorrow, we're coming off a couple of days of intense activity around the conflict in Israel between Israeli forces and Hamas, portions of which are starting to play out in cyberspace. We're going to get into that later today. And we also have an interview today with Perry Adams, program manager at DARPA, who's leading an effort to try to bring AI into cybersecurity. That's coming up on SafeMode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, the host of Safe Mode. I'm joined today by AJ Vicenz, reporter at CyberScoop. Thanks for coming on the show yet again, AJ, to talk about some state-backed hacking groups. In the last couple of days, yet another round of fighting has broken out in Israel between Israeli forces and Hamas, and we're beginning to see this conflict play out in cyberspace. And in particular, we've seen the reemergence of a hacking group known as Predatory Sparrow. This is an organization that you've written about in the past. They've been dormant for a while, and now they're back. Tell us about the circumstances in which they've resurfaced. Yeah, so in the midst of this horrific situation unfolding in Israel, um, it's kind of no surprise, right, that the hacktivist front personas or even the organic ones, you know, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. Uh, it, it's no surprise that they would pop up and try to either inflame the situation, take advantage of it, run disinformation, those kinds of things. It's kind of to be dis- expected with any major situation these days. But so there's there's a lot going on there. And I think as with each passing day, we, we're learning more and more about it. I, I've seen an estimate that as many as 100 distinct groups are involved, but you know those estimates kind of taken with a grain of salt because there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of uh, you know I could pose as anything online, right? Um, so it, it's really hard to tell, but at the very least, we can say there's a lot going on. But you know, a bulk of it has been. Um, you know, DDoS attacks or trying to take websites offline or defacing websites, kinds of things we've seen over the years. I don't really want to sort of downplay the seriousness of DDoS attacks, especially in key moments. Um, You know, rendering web services unavailable can be serious, but it's sort of viewed as a uh, lower level, non-sophisticated type of activity and sort of the province of the lower level hacking types but uh, you know on monday 
we saw this group, like you said, the predatory sparrow reemerge after sort of a hiatus of I don't know, at least 10 months, uh, maybe more. And they said, you know, the message, according to Google Translate, do you think this is scary? We returned. We hope you're following what is happening in Gaza. And then they shared a link to an Iranian state-linked news site that was, when I looked, unavailable, but it came back up the next day. So yeah. just showing, so, sort of showing that they're they're back and we'll see what happens. Yeah, so, so this is a group that's been linked to some of the more sophisticated operations that the Israeli government has allegedly carried out in the last couple of years two in particular one targeting payment systems at the at a network of gas stations in iran and another targeting steel facilities in iran Let, let's start with the the gas station hack what happened there so yeah in the fall of 2022 um these you know people want to go get gas, right? And they have, there's a payment system that's subsidized by the Iranian government and you could use these cards at gas pumps. And the system sort of went on the fritz. Um, and there wasn't a ton of information that came out about the technical details as to what specifically happened to the, to the technical infrastructure there. But the sort of, at the end of the day, the fuel was uh, in some cases unavailable, in some cases very hard to, access uh, it was very widespread very public and there was messaging around the attack that said essentially you know if you have problems with this you should contact your government um, and it was pretty transparently seen as an operation designed to embarrass the iranian government and to sort of undermine confidence in their ability to to operate yeah. and you know it, it it tracks with a previous attack on you know, several months prior on uh, the rail system in Iran that also, I've seen reporting that sort of distinguishes these, the groups behind this, but I've also seen research and reporting sort of links them. So I'm bringing it up, but that in that attack, rail systems, uh, sort of the computer backends shut down in a sense that slowed everything down, but also a, a message displayed there that also sort of trolled the Iranian government saying, essentially to people who could see the message, uh, your government doesn't know what it's doing, you should call them about this. So these, this is very public, this is designed to be public, it's almost like there's the hack, and then there's the, the operation that's designed to have it be noticed wide, widely. And that's what was really interesting about that particular attack. One of the hallmarks of, of these attacks that they've been carrying out are not only that they're able to be quite technically sophisticated in how they're carrying out their attacks, like targeting a nationwide payment system for automobile gasoline. That is, um, that's not an easy thing to do necessarily, right? But they're not only are they able to disrupt the payment system, but they're also able to display the types of messages that you're describing, right? That turn these cyber operations into a very clear propaganda win for allegedly the Israeli state, right? And in the, the case of the gas networks, the message that was displayed included, you know, contact details for the Supreme Leader's office in Iran saying, if this is upsetting to you, you know, get in touch with the Supreme Leader, right? Uh, giving the 
what was a pure cyber operation, this very interesting type of propaganda tie-in, right, if you will. And we saw that also with the attacks on the on the steel facilities. Walk us through what happened there. So in June of 2022, the group, the same group that was behind the fuel pump incident, uh, you know, shared messaging in, in Telegram, and I believe on Twitter at the time, basically announcing an attack on a series of steel facilities. Um, and in one case, in one of those facilities, they released what appeared to be you know, internal video from that facility showing damage. Um, you could see, you know, think of the molten steel that we're all sort of probably familiar with pouring out of a, a large cauldron, if you will, um, and going everywhere and, and, and just real world damage. And as part of the messaging with that one, you know, messaging is a big part of what they do. They essentially said that these facilities were connected to the IRGC and they also sort of made it clear that they had access to these internal video systems and that they carried out the attacks when they believed there would not be a lot of people inside the facilities, theoretically to limit you know, the potential for civilians to be hurt or you know, staff members at these facilities. I remember at the time, uh, researchers, uh, I forget which one, but I remember the uh, conversation where someone was saying it almost looks like an operation that was approved by lawyers because <laughs> it had the justification mm. of the facility being connected to the IRGC. It had sort of the, they were trying to go out of their way to prove that they tried to limit collateral damage and, you know, harm to civilians. And it, and then you sort of back up and putting together the connections between those facilities and the IRGC and the overall sort of packaging of it all. It was quite impressive, if you want to put it that way, from a from an attack standpoint, and sort of the overall landscape of the whole thing. Mm. And it really caught a lot of people's attention at the time. Yeah, I mean, the independent actors in, in cyberspace, the criminal actors, they usually don't have lawyers uh, approving their operations, right? So that type of kind of considered nature to an operation is is one of the reasons why I think a lot of folks look at a group like Predatory Sparrow and think, mm, you know, this is this is somebody with the backing of a state. But we haven't only seen Israeli actors in as part of the most recent round of fighting. We've also seen some pro-Iran actors get involved to to try to shape narratives. What are we seeing in terms of uh, pro-Iranian information operations around the conflict right now? That we know a little bit less about the specifics around those things, but you know we were uh, in a briefing yesterday with uh, the top cyber intelligence analyst at Mandiant, John Holtquist, and he said that there were signs that the Iranians were doing their own sort of disinformation campaigns, uh, promoting messages uh, about the inability of the Israelis to defend their own people those kinds of things. I mean, any sort of narrative that would undermine confidence in the Israeli government or the Israeli defense forces, and also sort of push this idea that the treatment of Palestinians by the Israeli government is the problem here and what should be focused on. Um, interestingly, 
Holquist also mentioned seeing indications of a sort of widespread Chinese-linked disinformation campaign getting involved. It's called Dragon Bridge, which is sort of the umbrella term for thousands of social media accounts across platforms pushing messages that generally, you know, both align with Chinese government priorities, but also typically malign U.S. standing and attack U.S. positions. Uh, the interesting thing and sort of the consistent reporting around Dragon Bridge, though, is that it's a lot of noise for very little sort of return. They generally don't get a lot of authentic you know, engagement. So I guess you know, the question about the efficacy of that and, and what's actually sort of happening and the traction they're getting with it is a, maybe a separate conversation, but it is interesting that they're sort of seizing on the moment as they do with that, that campaign to uh, twist the screwdriver on the U.S. a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things we're going to be watching going forward is the way that these operations try to shape perceptions around the conflict. The attack that was carried out by Hamas has obviously been deeply embarrassing to the Israeli security establishment. It's already being described as an intelligence failure on the level of the Yom Kippur War. And in the current round of normalization, between or the efforts at normalization between Israel and Arab states, one of the things that the Israelis can offer these states that they're trying to establish more fulsome diplomatic relations with is security assistance. And that reputation of Israel as you know, the predominant armed force in the region has now taken a big hit. And I think you see a lot of the information operations being carried out around this conflict trying to undermine that narrative as part of um, this conflict to try to get at some of the broader political aims right now to undermine the diplomatic efforts uh, that the current Israeli government has underway to try to establish ties with countries that historically have been their enemies. But we'll get into that and more in the future, I'm sure, as this conflict plays out. AJ, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Up next, I'm joined by Perry Adams, a program manager at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, where she leads the AI Cyber Challenge, a two-year competition to build software tools incorporating the latest AI technology to secure computer systems. I'm joined today by Perry Adams, a program manager at DARPA, who's overseeing the Artificial Intelligence Cyber Challenge. Perry Adams, welcome to Safe Mode. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. So you're overseeing the AI Cyber Challenge. This is a competition to find breakthrough AI technologies in cybersecurity. For listeners who might not be aware of this program, this challenge, walk us through the competition. What is it you're trying to accomplish here? So this is a two-year-long DARPA challenge where DARPA is putting nearly $20 million on the line to incentivize the development of new technology that can automatically find and fix vulnerabilities in software at scale. So we want to leverage AI, leverage these new modern advances in AI to secure the software on which all Americans rely. And so we're challenging, we're challenging teams to <clears throat> 
to come and develop these AI-driven systems, and we're going to hold a series of competitions over the next two years in which these AI-driven systems will be pitted against each other, challenged to find and fix vulnerabilities in software, and the best system will come out on top and win the top prize of $4 million. Okay, what are we, what's the... What's the end result of this this project going to be? What what are we going to have on on our hands at the end of this? We want to really push the needle in terms of what's possible uh, using AI to secure software. So today we really struggle to secure software at scale. We don't have the amount of manual expert labor it would take to actually find and fix all of the vulnerabilities we currently have in code. And that means that we have critical infrastructure systems that are extremely vulnerable. We have uh, a whole of society problem. Society is built on top of software and this challenge will develop systems that can secure that software at the scale that we currently can't today. One thing that I'm very excited about with regard to this challenge is just who we have coming together to help make sure we can build the best systems possible. So we have OpenAI, Anthropic, Google, and Microsoft who are coming together, led by DARPA, to make their cutting-edge technology available to the competitors of the competition, uh, and the competitors will build on top of this technology. They can leverage it in the systems they develop. And in doing that, we can take some of the frontier AI models, some of the best, uh, the best technology we have in this space today, and see what happens when you take computer security experts and you ask them to apply it to uh, the problem of software security. And I'm hoping to see just leaps and leaps forward uh, in what's possible when it comes to automatic software security. So if I'm if I'm a developer, I'm coming to this project, I want to participate and I'm like excited by the idea of working with OpenAI and Anthropic, you know, leading players in the space. What what is it that I can expect from these companies? Like what, what are they coming to the table with for this? So the full details of what's made available to the competitors, as well as full challenge details, will be made available uh, later this fall before the challenge officially kicks off uh, in uh, early in 2024. But until then, until then, we can't release the information until until we can release it to basically everyone at once. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So are you, are you, I know you're a veteran participant in like capture the flag competitions. Are you thinking about this a little bit as a capture the flag project or competition? So I'd say that capture the flag was one of the things that inspired uh, this competition. So I actually got my start playing uh, capture the flag competitions when I was in college. I was majoring in computer science, but what really motivated me to get into computer security was playing these capture the flag competitions. And for people, for your listeners that don't know, uh, this is a you know safe and ethical way for folks to learn about computer security. So. You're hacking, uh, you're hacking computers, servers that are set up for the purposes of this competition, and you hack into them and you 
uh, recover a file which has a string in it, which is the flag. And so you've captured the flag, essentially. Um, we're, not, we're not running around with uh, ribbons. Uh, uh, <laughs> that would cool, involve... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it would involve a lot more uh, physical uh, prowess than uh, computer security nerds are are known for. Um, but this this kind of competition uh, was really what motivated me to get into computer security. Uh, part of that was just because of uh, the the different kinds of problems you see in CTF and the way that collaboration happened uh, on a on a, the way that collaboration happens on a CTF team is incredibly fun. It's also incredibly powerful. Uh, uh, it's incredibly powerful motivator to get good at a number of different areas. So you'll have challenges that focus on reverse engineering. You'll have challenges that focus on vulnerabilities in uh, binaries. You'll have challenges that focus on uh, web security or application security, as well as cryptography. And so you have folks with expertise in one of these domains or several of them. And to solve challenges, you'll often see a lot of crossover. Uh, and so you'll see people teaming in different ways, coming together to share their expertise. And you learn a lot from other people. Uh, but it's also it, it also demonstrated to me the power of competition to bring together folks from different backgrounds and have them uh, uh, combine their knowledge to really uh, drive something forward. And so that really did motivate me uh, to start the AI Cyber Challenge because we've seen a lot of great advances in computer security in the domain of computer science called program analysis that focuses on understanding code and automatically reasoning about it to potentially discover vulnerabilities. We've also seen great advances in AI. And so this challenge is really about bringing together those two worlds, those two areas of research, and driving innovation at that nexus. So in going through some of the DARPA materials on this um, ahead of our chat, there's this wonderful phrase in one of your documents in which you ask participants to create a quote fully autonomous cyber reasoning system. So break that down for us. What are you envisioning that this autonomous cyber reasoning system is going to do? What does that, what does that mean? So we really want to reduce the amount of human intervention necessary to securing systems, securing um, computer systems at scale. So what this challenge will produce is systems that can take in software, find vulnerabilities in that software, and suggest fixes for it. And the way we're thinking about this is based on current software development today, especially in the open source community. And so this challenge, I talked about our AI collaborators earlier, but this challenge uh, on this challenge will also partner, uh, will also collaborate with the Open Source Security Foundation, which is a uh, a project of the Linux Foundation to model our challenges on uh, uh, open source uh, libraries, but also to model our systems so that they can fit into uh, the open source development process today. And I, I bring that up here because one thing that the open source community has not just pioneered, but uh, spent decades uh, developing policies and infrastructure around is 
uh, is commits to code bases. So open source code, anyone uh, in the world might be able to suggest a change to it, might be able to suggest what we call a commit to a repository. But of course, the owner of that code, the owner of that repository will go through and review those commits and will accept the ones that make sense. And if there's a problem with one, I uh, uh, might send it back to whoever committed it or might reject it, right? And so we're designing our systems to essentially do the same thing, to automatically identify vulnerabilities in software and to automatically suggest fixes for it. And then it will go through that review process for which the infrastructure already exists. It fits very cleanly within the way that software developers develop code today. When you talk to folks in, in open source security world right now, it's, uh, you know, top of mind is still these really super prevalent bugs in open source libraries that just won't go away. Log4j being, you know, a principal example of that. How are you, is, is it these large scale kind of catastrophic open source vulnerabilities that you're trying to, trying to go after with this project? We're really trying to achieve both breadth and depth when it comes to finding vulnerabilities. So Obviously, we want to find those vulnerabilities that are incredibly potent that we see attackers, we see attackers leveraging. But the goal here is really to get as many uh, vulnerabilities as possible. And so one way in which we're hoping collaborating with the open source community will drive this is open source makes up about you know, 80% of code in many uh, sectors, uh, many critical infrastructure sectors. It also makes up just a majority of the code uh, uh, running on uh, systems just throughout society. And so the issues that the open source uh, community has in terms of security are really representative of uh, uh, software security issues more broadly because it is the majority of, of software. So we're hoping by working with the OpenSSF and uh, using them as a conduit through the community, we can model our challenges based on those security issues that they're seeing today. And we can make sure that we're, uh, uh, that we're exercising a representative set of, uh, uh, the, of those vulnerabilities on our, on our challenges so that we are getting that coverage. Cybersecurity vendors over the past 10 years have you know, been selling AI solutions as the next great things and the next great thing in computer security. And at the same time, computer security, broadly speaking, remains a bit of a disaster. Uh, curious what you think it is about this era of AI that is maybe different, that a might be able to deliver some of those security gains that the industry claims that AI is going to deliver, but broadly speaking, hasn't really? So what I'm hoping to see happen on this challenge, again, going back to how I talked about CTF teams taking folks in different, uh, with different areas of expertise and bringing them together, that we're not just throwing AI naively at uh, software security issues, but we're partnering with software security experts, experts in developing automatic solutions for vulnerability discovery, uh, and we're partnering them with uh, uh, leading experts in technology in um, in AI to find solutions that are uh, uh, that are technically informed and that can leverage AI intelligently 
to secure software. And so that's why I think driving innovation at that nexus is, is such an important facet of this. The other, the other aspect is we're trying to solve one problem in, in computer security, which is vulnerabilities in software. That's a huge problem. You know, that's how hackers get into systems. But there's many different facets of cybersecurity. And when we apply AI to them, we're going to be applying AI in different ways, in ways that are specific to whatever that uh, a suite of problems is. All of the big players in the cybersecurity industry right now are, are are playing with a lot of the same technologies that that you're working with here. What do you what is it that you think this project is going to achieve that you know wouldn't be achieved at a big industry player in CrowdStrike, Google, major kind of like cybersecurity vendors? I'll go back to the focus of this, right, which is about securing software and developing tools that can secure our software. Uh, some of the uh, folks that you just listed really don't focus on uh, security within the software development process. Uh, uh, and, and some of the other folks you listed, such as Google, have come, uh, uh, have uh, gotten on board with this challenge and uh, have come to collaborate with DARPA on this effort. But historically, DARPA has, when it comes to computer security, been one of the leading institutions in this space. The U.S. government has a significant interest in uh, securing our software and developing tools to secure our software that the commercial industry doesn't necessarily um, I. I that the commercial industry doesn't necessarily have. And so uh, we're hoping that uh, DARPA can continue leadership in that space uh, to, to drive uh, development of technology for, again, software security. Yeah, I mean, in, in that way, is this, is this about trying to get more resources or, or greater technical ability like into open source development communities that, you know, really... You know, in some of these cases, you have you know one or two people maintaining a, a library that serves as a totally crucial aspect of the the software ecosystem, and yet doesn't have the types of security resources that you know the big players do. Yeah, and I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, I'm sure your listeners have heard uh, people talk about the challenges in open source security for for a very long time. There's the very famous XKCD comic of uh, a giant, um, I th you know exactly what I'm talking about, of a, uh, a giant software project that's modeled as a bunch, of, um, a bunch of blocks on top of each other like Jenga. And then you have one tiny block holding up a huge portion of it. That's one guy in the Midwest who's maintaining this one software library on which the rest of the project, the project relies. And this is, this really gets at the uh, heart of uh, how valuable open source is and how critical it is that we come together as a community to secure it because open source is, uh, is in many cases a volunteer, uh, is a, um, is the open source community is made up of volunteers who give away their time and energy to uh, maintain 
these software projects that are found uh, uh, that that are found in numerous code bases that are really ubiquitous, and they don't have a lot of resources at their disposal when it comes to when it comes to security, uh, uh, and yet we all rely on them, and they're part of our uh, software supply chains. And so this is really about giving those developers additional resources and giving them the tools they need to secure their software without them having to go out and develop specific expertise in software security on top of everything else they're already doing for free. And as I understand it, the the outcomes of this, the winning projects, they're all going to be open sourced and made available to the developer community totally freely, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, one thing that we are uh, we are doing is um, tying prize money to open sourcing open sourcing your your project. Uh, sorry, your AI driven system that uh, you're developing on AICC. And what we're also doing is working with uh, OpenSSF to uh, uh, to package uh, the outputs of AICC in a way that fits within the software developers, uh, the software development pipeline for uh, open source projects. Uh, and, and because uh, the commercial industry largely mirrors uh, uh, the open source community in terms of software development lifecycle and the processes there, such as CICD build pipelines, et cetera, by packaging in a way that, that fits within the uh, development life cycles for open source uh, projects, it will also be easy to uh, easy for the commercial industry, for commercial industry to leverage as well. So yeah, just walk us through walk us through the timeline on this. When are we going to have a winner? How much will winning teams be receiving like you say this is a two-year product project like walk us through it what is it going to look like over the next two years i'll I'll skip ahead and just say that the semifinals of the competition will be held at defcon in 2024 and the finals will be held at defcon in 2025 and so to back up a little bit we're going to kick off uh in early 2024 and have a qualification round uh, uh, in which the top 20 teams will advance to the semifinal competition at DEF CON in 2024. But before that, the competition is really open to anyone uh, uh, anyone who wants to participate, um, subject to some of the rules that are listed on AICyberchallenge.com. Uh, in addition to that, DARPA is funding up to seven small businesses, up to $1 million each to participate in uh, that first phase of the competition. So like I said, the top 20 teams coming out of that qualification round in late spring 2024 will advance to the semifinal competition at DEF CON that summer. And uh, coming out of that, the top five teams will win $2 million each and be able to use that money uh, to spend the next year maturing their systems to compete in the final competition at DEF CON in 2025. There, the top uh, the uh, top team, the first place team will win $4 million. The second place team will win $3 million and the third place team will win $1.5 million. And I'm incredibly excited about uh, I'm, I'm incredibly excited about what we're going to see produced on, 
on this effort. Uh, the DAR DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge, which was a previous challenge run in this space, produced a number of gains when it came to uh, uh, when it came to uh, software security, and that was without AI. And so here, here I'm hoping to have. Uh, I'm hoping that AI will have an amplification effect on what we're able to do in the area of computer security. Maybe for folks who are listening to this and are, are thinking about getting involved, what, what would be your advice to folks who are thinking about maybe putting together a, a proposal for this? What should they be thinking about? Well, the first thing I'd say is uh, for interested interested folks to visit AICyberChallenge.com. There's a wealth of information available there. Uh, like you've done, I'd really encourage them to read the rules. The rules outline at a high level some of what the competition will look like. Uh, there's also a uh, Slack for folks that might want to participate to uh, talk to other folks who are thinking about participate and potentially form teams that way. Uh, the window for participation will be uh, uh, for the open track registration will be open until uh, uh, until late winter. And so there's still a lot of time for folks to figure out who they might want to work with, how they might want to participate in this challenge. There'll be further information coming out later this fall about the technical details with regard to the challenge. But again, we're not kicking off until uh, until early 2024. So there's lots of time, or I should say not too much, but there's some time for folks to uh, uh, figure out what participating would look like. In your kind of like wildest dreams, like what's what's coming out of this? We completely change the game when it comes to software security. We are able to find and fix vulnerabilities in software at a rate uh, I, that today would be unheard of. And rather than having ad hoc efforts to find vulnerabilities in code, as software developers are developing code, they are seeing that code uh, uh, secured in real time. So before we even uh, uh, before we even put that code out into the world, it's already gone through uh, uh, next generation security review automatically, and those issues have been remediated. I think that's a great note to end on. Perry Adams, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to SafeMode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com dot com.